0: Hi, I'm Elise Lunen, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop podcast. Today's guests are Nick Kristoff and Cheryl Wudan. But before I get to them, I want to thank our friends at Saqqara who made today's episode possible. Our food editor, Caitlin, has been working hard to churn out cooking tips and tricks and recipes of all kinds to help us get through this quarantine. And a lot of us are getting to know our kitchens a little better. But there are always days or weeks where I don't feel the inspiration to cook or have the energy or the ingredients on hand. That's where Saqqara comes in. Saqqara Life is a wellness company that believes eating healthy can and should be enjoyable. And they believe that nutritious food has the power to help keep us well. They offer an organic plant-based nutrition program, and they're still delivering their fresh, plant-rich meals nationwide. Everything shows up at your door, ready to eat. Right now, Sakara is offering our listeners twenty percent off their first order when they go to sakara.com/goop or enter code goop twenty at checkout. That's s-a-k-a-r-a.com/goop to get twenty percent off your first order.
1: Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it. Let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go.
2: For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless. But we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves. And that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast,
0: bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Nick Kristoff and Cheryl Wudon are Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists, husband and wife, and the co-authors of the New York Times best-selling book, Tightrope. This is a beautiful story, not only because it describes the angst, despair, and collapse of working-class families and communities across the country, but it is also Nick Kristoff's homecoming story. Kristoff grew up in Oregon, a small rural town that had been booming from good union jobs, jobs that eventually went away. Kristoff shares his own journey of making it, not realizing that many of the friends he left behind would eventually succumb to death or the despair of addiction, homelessness, incarceration, and trauma. He and his wife, Cheryl, are both joining me today to talk about the interventions that may help lift entire communities out of poverty throughout the country and that would benefit the economy at the same time. We talk about why kids need access to birth control and sex education, why we need universal health care, and why people deserve the right to work. As Christoph puts it, we need a safety net for each family that's walking on a tightrope. We recorded this conversation at the very beginning of March, at the beginning of what would eventually become the COVID pandemic. And it's interesting because the book and our conversation is even more resonant now as we see more and more families falling off the tightrope.
2: By all means, encourage teenagers to control their hormones and be responsible, but also then encourage members of Congress to show some responsibility and provide funding for Title X, family planning, etc.
0: Let's get right to my conversation with Nick Kristoff and Cheryl Wudan. Thank you for being here on what I'm sure is a very busy book tour. I'm imagining, I mean, it is a hard book to read, but so beautiful.
2: Thank you. profound,
0: really profound.
2: Thank you. I mean, it was, given how personal it is, it uh, was sometimes hard to write, too.
0: Yeah, no, I can imagine. I mean, growing up, as we were discussing, in Montana, and I'm very familiar with the small towns of the rural West, and we have a lot of meth, et cetera, and clearly Mm. just not great jobs. And then Montana is sort of an interesting example of a sort of red... Blue, purpley state, yeah. and then these masses of incredible wealth—things like the Yellowstone Club and the middle right. of the state—and
2: yeah, I mean the migration of Montana from being a Democratic, Mike Mansfield state yeah. to today's mostly Republican state is kind of what has happened across. Many of these states, many of these places, I mean, Democrats have to fight for fight for yeah. those states and those votes.
0: Yeah, I mean, we have Bullock as the governor, and then we have John Tester, obviously. But we also have Danes, and his address is actually at the Yellowstone Club, which is really interesting. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he's not a Montanan. So it's it's wild, wow. I think, sometimes how people – and it was interesting sort of in your journey back to Yamhill, how many of these people who are stuck in these incredible trauma loops – are
1: still supporting Trump. So I think a lot of the people that we interviewed, they just want to be heard. Yeah. And they don't, like people were saying that we just think everybody in, in Washington is corrupt. We need to break up the system. And that's what Bernie is also saying. So I think it what it is is that these people feel as though they've been neglected for too long. Yeah. And they want kind of a say at the table.
0: Yeah. I mean, and it's, you do such a great job of sort of this talking about this small town and the number six bus and the people who made it, like yourself. We used to say about the school in Missoula that I went to Yale or jail. And it seems sort <laughs> of comparable, you know, the people who literally died. Yeah. I mean, staggering, like four out of five kids dying from addiction. My, my neighbor's and, family, right. Yeah, like just sort of this this fork in the road that's happened in this country where it's sort of the wealthy and privileged on one island and then everyone else sort of s- stuck on the rest of the country, you know, languishing.
2: It was a certain amount of, you know, survivor's guilt in writing yeah. Tightrope because um, I kept thinking about... You know, so. Uh, for example, the family that you alluded to just down the road, uh, five kids, the oldest is my year, uh, Farlan Knapp, and four out of five of those kids are gone and uh, from drugs, alcohol, etc. And I, you know I keep wondering what if I had been in that house and what if Farlan had been in my house, uh, mm-hmm. surrounded by books being read to, et cetera. And I yeah. had been in their house getting beaten up by uh, their dad, Gary Knapp, and you, You do just – I mean, that's why we chose the title tightrope because it felt like that if you were lucky and had educated parents, then you were on this nice, comfortable path and you were less likely to slip. And even if you did slip, you could immediately get up again while kids like the Naps were on this tightrope. And, you know, some kids make it across the tightrope and that's wonderful, but one slip and that's it.
0: Yeah. And I think that one of the things that I loved about the book as well is that you guys rail against the mythology of personal responsibility, which is the narrative of America, right? Like, we're all responsible for what we do and the decisions we make. And if you make bad decisions, you're going to end up in jail. And we all know that that's a fallacy. And so I think that survivor's guilt, you know, is very real. I was interviewing... Rihanna Gunn Wright in DC, who's one of the people who wrote the Green New Deal. And she right. grew up in Chicago literally eating lead chips. And she was just talking about her own survivor's guilt and how she hates being, you know, she's a young black woman, she's went to Yale, et cetera. And she's like, the exceptionalism, you know, like right. I hate
2: this proves the yes, case that anybody can do that it. Yeah. Anybody <laughs> can
0: do it. And she's like, and I am no smarter
1: than yeah. so many of my peers who are in jail or dead. And that's where I think that schools can play a much bigger role. So, of course, you know, family is extremely important. But when you know, family falls down on on, on a kid, schools really can pick a lot up. And you know, back then, uh, when we were growing up, they actually didn't. Uh, their a lot of their modus operandi was, oh, we got to get this kid out. He's just terrible. Just you know, suspend him. Yeah. Now they recognize that the very people who are troublemakers, those are the students who really need school even more. Yeah. So in general. They're trying to uh, keep the students in and give them counseling, give them outside help. And what was very encouraging is that in Yamhill, the school district there, they're working with – it's a very collaborative approach. They're working with the health department to bring in health representatives into the school Mm -hmm. who can help with counseling and with spotting kids who – there might be child abuse or something mm-hmm. like that and then they're also working with the police, you know, force and uh, with the courts too. And so I think it's really encouraging to see that there are there's a recognition that we need to do something more.
2: You know, we really do think that this is a impediment to smarter policy. We have the toolboxes to to make a big difference, but what we lack is the will and understanding because we're so obsessed with personal responsibility and you know in the context of driving we understand that personal responsibility matters a lot of people get into car accidents because they do dumb things they drive too fast they drive while texting they don't put their seat belt on, et on etc etc but in the context of driving we support policies that mitigate bad choices and so we do have seat belts and we have airbags, and we have padded dashboards, and we have uh, you know divided highways, and so on. And you know we could decide, okay, pers- we want to show that personal responsibility is what matters. But we're going to put spikes in dashboards, and that will teach people to behave responsibly. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's obviously ludicrous in the context of driving, but in the context of daily life, that's exactly what we do. You make a bad choice about drugs. Okay, you're going to get a criminal record, you're going to get sent off to prison, and you'll never be employed again.
1: Well, I think that in the context of driving, people think, oh, well, we have to actually prevent it so that innocent people don't get you know, killed, you know, through car, car crashes. So there's, you know, another, an added incentive to improve, you know, car safety. But in the sense of what we're talking about here, there is also a similar uh, force, which is we want America to stay competitive in the rest of the world. You know, are we talking about bringing manufacturing back home? Well, then we need to make sure that we have a very educated and able workforce, which means we need to lift all Americans because you are going to help make my country that I live in much stronger. If you don't, you're going to drag down my country. And yeah. that's not good.
0: And we're already there. I mean, I loved the the chapter title, We're 61, right? Because we all have this sort of America's number one. Right. And meanwhile, let's see, we rank number 40 in child mortality, according to the Social Project, Progress Index. We rank number 32 in internet access, number 39 in access to clean drinking water, number 50 in personal safety, and number 61 in high school enrollment. I mean, that is staggering. And this
2: is a country that, you know, we pioneered mass high school attendance. We pioneered high schools for everybody. And yet, and as recently as the 1960s, we were number one in high school enrollment. And then every other country basically surpassed us.
0: Yeah. And it's essential because then you guys, what is it called? The the sort of the triple, the success sequence. Yeah. Which
1: really has been proven that it works, which is that if you graduate from high school, if you get a full time job and you have kids after you get married, only 2% of adults are, are in poverty people who have not done any of those three things, 79% are in poverty. So there is something to be said for trying to get people to follow the success sequence. We can help them do that more. I mean, we shouldn't say, okay, you know, you didn't do this, so look, and that means I can succeed. This is not sort of a zero-sum game. This is like everybody wins if we can have a stronger country. And so schools can nudge people to stay in high school longer. They can say, if you want a driver's license, then you have to be enrolled in high school. Well, that is a real encouragement or they can say well kids you know depending upon the state have to stay in school until they're 18 hopefully yeah. they'll have graduated high school by then as well the other thing is that we can give us uh, we can encourage schools to do more vocational training or sort of the modern version of vocational training that's another thing that will give them skills that so they can, when they leave if they don't even graduate they leave with some sort of skill we can give them more counseling there's a lot of things that high schools can do it does take resources and political will. And we can give them some sexual education. Yes. I
0: mean, yeah. it is a staggering problem.
2: Yeah. I mean, of course, one of those elements of, of the success sequence is having babies as, as teenagers, for example. And, you know, okay, there's an element of personal responsibility there as well. There's also a case of policy responsibility. American kids have sex at the same rates as European kids, according to surveys. And yet American teenage girls have babies at three times the rate of uh, European girls. And that's because European girls have much better access to comprehensive sex education and much better access to reliable, Mm -hmm. uh, long-acting, reversible contraception. And So, you know, by all means, encourage teenagers to control their hormones and be responsible, but also then encourage members of Congress to show some responsibility and provide funding for Title X family planning, et cetera.
0: I love when you guys compare having, you know, teaching kids how to use condoms and giving them access and then blaming condoms and promiscuity with blaming umbrellas for, for rain, rain. <laughs> yeah no yeah. but it's true it's just like doesn't it, actually there's nothing less sexy than talking about contraception right. so I don't see why we wouldn't it's, the amount that my mom drilled me on contraception I was like I will never have sex don't worry <laughs> I this is my least favorite conversation ever and as you say like economically, it is, you know, an IUD is five hundred dollars, and a Medicaid birth is seventeen grand. Right. It um, just,
2: it's, you know, helping uh, at-risk young women who don't want to get pregnant actually avoid pregnancy pays for itself just in economic terms about seven times over, and. It is also so good for those girl. if a girl – you know, when a girl has a baby at 16 or 17, it's not good for her outcomes. She often drops out of high school and it's not good for the baby's outcomes.
0: And what – like in a place like Yamhill, is the community there anti-choice? Is it, is it about just – or is there no place to get an abortion or
2: – So people are uh, certainly – you know, they – Many people are deeply religious, evangelical, and so regard abortion as murder. And so, but of course, I mean, some people regard IUDs, for example, as abortifacients, but there isn't any particular reason to be hostile to implants, for example. And there, I think it's just a strange way that reproductive health creates this knee-jerk, you know, mm-hmm. fear and hostility that somehow it's going to lead to abortion, when in fact, of course, if you help avoid unwanted pregnancies, then that reduces abortion.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. It's certainly not going to prevent kids from having sex. And then I also want to talk about just sort of this was, I thought, this quote that you guys cited from Theodore Roosevelt was staggering. So this is more than a century ago. Exactly as the special interests of cotton and slavery threatened our political integrity before the Civil War, so now the great special business interests too often control and corrupt the men and methods of government for their own profit. The absence of effective state and especially national restraint upon unfair money-getting has tended to create a small class of enormously wealthy and economically powerful men whose chief object is to hold and increase their power. The prime need is to change the conditions which enable these men to accumulate power. So, Bezos, Gates, Buffett, the three of them have as much, more wealth than the
2: bottom 50% of this bottom country. Bottom half of the population, yeah. I mean, it's staggering.
1: Well, you know, in many ways, though, they actually admit it. And so they are willing to pay higher taxes. A number of them said that we haven't heard that from Bezos. And and Amazon, you know, has paid zero tax and, in fact, gets a credit. So, you know, maybe he doesn't have strong views, you know, in the same way that Bill Gates and, and Warren Buffett have said they'll pay they're willing to pay more taxes. But a lot of it is it's not them, just them. It's just this whole group of 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 people that does quiet lobbying spends mm-hmm. a lot of money on that and uh, oh, the mentality towards uh, p- subsidies is just remarkable the difference in mentality so for instance you know if you're talking about the working class they get angry when their friend gets section 8 housing and doesn't have to pay money for the section 8 housing mm-hmm. it's like you know that guy he doesn't deserve that where my road hasn't been fixed in all the you know all these years and I pay taxes too What they don't realize is that there are people who, you know, basically can buy, spend $200 million to buy a condo in New York City and pay property taxes as if that condo is worth only $9.5 million. And it's, this is called, wow, he's really clever, instead of this is a subsidy, but it's really a subsidy to the rich. And I think that people don't, Recognize the degree to which we do subsidize uh, the very wealthy.
0: Well, don't you think that for some reason people also just like love rich people in this country? Like it seems like there's this reverence for what we- I mean, you see it with Trump, it's reverence for wealth.
2: It's a reverence for some kinds of wealth, it's animosity toward professionals often, but a reverence for people in the business world. And I think it's a little bit like the regard people have for lottery winners mm-hmm. that they think that they, you know, I too could win that lottery and I too could be mm. uh, Trump. But like in terms of the, the Roosevelt quote you read about the way the system is rigged, you know, traditionally like when I studied political science, there was a view that there's a self-correcting mechanism in America. And so if the wealth get, if the wealthy get too affluent and powerful, then there'll be a populist movement that will arise and will raise taxes on them, for example. And in fact, that didn't work out partly because of campaign funding. Mm-hmm. And so as the wealthy get wealthier, then while there might be some critics, in the meantime, they get so much more power that monetary power converts into political power. Yeah. And so that stays off any attempt to, to to correct the mechanism with higher taxes, for example.
0: Yeah. But it's These we need, you know, we clearly we need to not only it's good economic sense, like we need to fund some of these programs. It's like, what did you say for one dollar spent on
1: early childhood, you can get seven dollars, but you know, and there are a lot of these programs that actually have paybacks between you know, $7 on the dollar or, you know, $10 on the on, on the dollar or $12 on the dollar. It really depends on how they're executed. But because they are so effective, early childhood education is so much cheaper to implement you know, for young kids than later on, you know, if the kid is he becomes a troublemaker, needs counseling, mm-hmm. you know, get, may be put in jail, or, you know, then there's all sorts of court costs, let alone to think if there's any, you know, health issues involved so we just save so much more at the when we actually invest at the front end And a lot of it is investing in human capital, which we also have neglected. For a long time in the 1960s, you know, it was let's not invest in human capital, partly because of Nixon's Southern strategy where it was, okay, you know, by the way, and it was a racialized argument that if you invest in human capital, you know, know, all those African-Americans, they're going to do really well. You know, the, the money shouldn't go just to them. And so it was really a sinister strategy, but it has lingered. Mm -hmm. And so now people argue, well, how come now when it happens – when these problems are afflicting the white uh, working class, you're paying attention? And that's absolutely true. It is totally hypocritical and it is disgusting. But at the same time, if it gets us to move to fix the problem, then let's do it because let's fix it for everyone and keep getting it – keep fixing it, improving it and and doing it much better because we have to invest – in Americans, uh, so that they—if we want them to lift themselves up—the best way to do it is to, you know, invest in them.
0: Yeah. Although you guys, do you point? fun at the whole lift yourself up by your bootstraps, right?
2: And the whole bootstraps expression used to mean the exact opposite of what it mi- means today. In the early 1800s, it meant to do something impossible. It was a satirical expression. And then somehow the satire was lost by the 20th century, and it became an instruction about what people should do.
0: Right. and it, But it's actually kind of appropriate, because it's like, go do something that you cannot like systemically... <laughs> you can actually do. Yeah, you aren't supported <laughs> in, in, in achieving. So clearly we have tax issues to fix like you talk about some of the tax subsidies to employers that don't ever make it to employees like this was staggering 8.7 billion over 16 years to boeing and then they ended up ultimately laying 5600 people off oregon gave nike 2 billion dollars for 500 jobs which is 4 million per job louisiana 15 million per for 15 jobs
1: and the problem with this is that each of the states they are competing they want companies to locate in their state which is great. The problem is that they don't monitor it. So they there's no follow up. They don't say okay Boeing, we're going to give you these subsidies because you say you're going to lo- you know you're going to basically hire, you know, thousands of people. Every year, there's no monitoring program. And so, right. of course, the com- companies themselves are not going to say, hey, where's our monitor- monitoring program? And so that's how it slips through the cracks. And so states have to be much more aware that if they give a dollar out, they need to get $4 back. They need to get $10 back.
0: We'll get back to Nick Kristof and Wu Dan in just a second. Since I've been cooped up at home, I've been on a bit of a food swing. I'm trying to be a little more mindful around meals and making time to sit down and enjoy what I'm eating. This is easier said than done, considering I'm working from my bedroom right now and I have two little boys running around all day. One thing that obviously makes breakfast, lunch, and dinner at home easier is having some already made meals on hand. And if you're looking for a delivery option, Sakara Life is still delivering their organic nutrition program. They deliver fresh, ready-to-eat meals nationwide and right to your door. Their menu, of chef-crafted breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, changes weekly and is designed to support overall health. All of their meals are organic, plant-based, gluten-free, dairy-free, non-GMO, and contain no refined sugar. Right now, Sakara is offering our listeners 20% off their first order when they go to sacaracom goop or enter code goop20 at checkout. That's S-A-K-A-R-A dot com slash goop to get 20% off your first order. Back to my chat with Nick Christoph and Cheryl Budun. So, okay, I thought this was helpful when just to take it back to like a place like Yamhill, when you sort of outline the four steps of sort of what happened. You want to take us through this?
2: Just to give the little backdrop Yamhill. Yamhill yam hill is on the very edge of the willamette valley going into the coastal range a town of about 500 people when i was growing up now about a thousand the economy was dependent on agriculture timber and light manufacturing i bet it was very similar to a lot of montana towns that mm-hmm. you remember from your youth and it was a place that had done really well for many many decades and there were a lot of blue-collar people who had good jobs and had bought their homes they'd gotten help from the gi bill of rights it was a very optimistic place and then those jobs essentially all went away you you know all those good blue collar union jobs collapsed partly because unions went away partly because of globalization and partly because of automation and then meth came through at about that same time and A lot of men in particular were very frustrated and self-medicated with meth and and with alcohol. And there, it's certainly been alcoholism in previous generations, but alcoholism, you know, you can be a functional alcoholic. You can't be functional when you're addicted to meth. Mm -hmm. And then people got criminal records, which made them less employable, less marriageable. The social fabric of places like Yamhill, the the strong family structure, completely unraveled very very quickly, and then kids ended up growing up in these environments that were, I mean, we quoted a principal as saying that these kids are feral,
0: mm-hmm. like
2: wild, like wild dogs, and it's you know it's it's really hard to write about a town that you love mm-hmm. and feel these very deep ties to, and. In a podcast, you know, I want to brag about Yamhill and come visit it, mm-hmm. and yet I'm talking Home about of Beverly these Cleary. Home to Beverly Cleary, exactly. Yeah, yeah. she wrote a, a, a her children's book, Emily's Runaway Imagination, is set in Yamhill. She told me.
1: Yeah, but but also at the same time, though Yamhill is the heart of wine country, it's doing really well. There's a great number of vineyards that are cropping up and and putting Yamhill on the map because you know people are drinking wine across the country from, from the Yamhill area. Yet at the same time, we have this underground destruction that is going on that people you know aren't paying attention to, and there's this whole group of people. throughout, you know, the country that are feeling terrible. I mean, they don't have – a lot of them aren't even looking for jobs because they've been out of the job market for so long. So they're not even counted in the statistics. And then there are people who are making so much less than they were making before. And even if you're making, you know, minimum wage, federal minimum wage, which is $7.25 per hour. If you have a spouse, the two of you and you have two kids, and you're looking to find a two-bedroom apartment, there is no place in the country where you can find working on minimum wage two earners, you know, at minimum wage, full-time jobs. There's no place in the country that you can find a two-bedroom apartment that you can rent without having to pay more than what the, you know, uh, guidelines for how much rent you should pay relative right. to your income. It's, you know, we have a very distorted economy And that makes it much harder for for people at the low end to make ends meet.
0: Yeah, no, it's completely untenable. And, you know, going back to that that trauma loop for kids who are growing up in these environments, you know, I love the story of Rebecca and the Women in Recovery program and its success. And this study that you guys cite where 81% of delinquent girls in South Carolina had experienced sexual violence, while another in Oregon found that 93% of girls in the juvenile justice system there had experienced sexual or physical violence, and then 79% of these women in jails have children under the age of 18. So it's just perpetuating it this just horrible, horrible cycle.
1: And that's why we need to address a lot of these problems. You know, with address the underlying cause, and you know, our you know, mass incarceration policy that has been in effect mm-hmm. for decades really was so much more destructive than we even imagined, because we broke up families. You know, we separated, whether it was the father, or whether it was the mother, we separated them from their kids. And then the kids grow up, and they, you know, they're not in great circumstances, and they're going to grow up, you know, probably going to, you know, commit the same kind of things. So that's why this program Women Women in Recovery is just so astounding because what they recognize is that a lot of these women, their underlying cause for criminality wasn't like they're just hardened criminals. A lot of it is because they're addicted to something. And so they said, let's take these women and put them into a program to address their addiction so that in two years time they will come out and they will become productive members of society, which is exactly what they do. They put them through therapy, psychotherapy, you know, medical uh, exams and evaluation, all sorts of classes and, you know, apprentice, apprenticeships, so they come out with jobs, as opposed to being sentenced to five years in prison and sitting there for, for how many years and coming out and then going off and doing the same thing. And so, actually, in Oklahoma, where this program is, in, in Tulsa, they've actually saved the government $70 million uh, in prison, health care, yeah. and, and core costs.
0: I mean, it, let's see, s- as you say several studies have found that child poverty costs the united states about 1 trillion each year in increased health crime prison and welfare spending as well as in reduced earnings and that it's a million for every person who has a life sentence it's a million dollars
2: that's about right yeah, yeah. and you know Look, uh, poverty is hard. Um, Homelessness is – I mean, there's obviously no silver bullet. But we know how to make a big difference. There's – the the National Academies had an excellent study that came out a year ago. It's offering a program about how we could reduce child poverty in the United States by half. Britain, actually, under Tony Blair, did reduce British child poverty by half. You know, we can do these things – but they have to be a priority. We have to care about them.
0: Yeah. What was the plan in the US? I it, know you outlined steps in the book, but...
2: So one of the key things is child allowances. So, And there's a bill in the Senate that has bipartisan support that would do that. And essentially, it would provide a payment of about $300 to every household with a a, a young child. And it turns out this makes a really dramatic difference. And, you know, some of the... Money is poorly spent and some is wasted. But meanwhile, you know, we've spent about $30 billion Mm -hmm. bribing farmers to support Trump because of the cost to them of the trade embargoes. I mean, the money would have been infinitely better spent supporting America's children to fight poverty.
0: And isn't that also like sort of one of the myths that you want, you know, Reagan creating, I know it was actually the welfare queen was just happened to be a real person, yeah. however the actual evidence it's one point five percent?
1: Well they're they're it, it, really thinking about creating dependency. They're worried that you know any kind of you know government program is going to create dependency. Well, look at the hedge fund yacht club, right? So, yeah. you know, people get subsidies when they buy their yachts. Is that creating a dependency? Yes, it is creating a dependency for the yacht industry, supposedly. But a lot of people we've discovered, they don't want to be on welfare. It's just it's it, because because we have stigmatized it. And same thing with food stamps. We have sti- stigmatized it. But at the same time, we do also think that people just want nudges and that, you know, they just want a little bit of help. And a lot of the programs that we've, we looked at, they've done research and it shows that when you actually can give them a little bit, uh, some nudges that helps them move to the next step, then they actually can you know, yes. run with it. I, yeah. I think it's so...
0: Um, maddening this idea that most people are sort of lazy insolent and want to you know be on the teat or whatever it is that they say right. when it's like these despair deaths like people are devastated you right. know and yeah that's- i mean
2: so one of the people we write about in tightrope is our very good friend clayton green who died a year ago and clayton was in school with me he was kicked out of school in the ninth grade uh, for fighting. Now, he should not have been fighting. He should have, you know, I mean, he could have done other things. He ended up, so he never took high school chemistry, obviously. He ended up becoming a chemist on his own. He was cooking meth. He was one of the first people in the area to cook meth. No, this was a dumb thing to do. But if we as a society had supported him and kept him in school, then he would have been a great and talented chemist who could have worked as a pharmacist. He could have worked for a local company. And we ended up paying as a society and we were willing to incarcerate people like Clayton but not to educate them.
1: And one of the things we discovered is that, you know, jobs are more than just income. They also give people purpose, meaning and dignity. And so that's why it's important for us to recognize that people aren't just going to, you know, like a universal basic, basic income. They're not just going to, you know, oh, wow, this is great. The government's giving money. You know, that isn't going to fill their, you know, sense of purpose. It's gonna, not going to fill the void that is created when they, if they don't have a job, their sense of dignity. And that's really important. We, we realize that when, you, when job losses devastate a community, it, it's not just the income that's lost. It's just the sense of pride, that yeah. you have when you can, you know, you know, provide for your family. And that's what leads to self-medication. It helps contribute to self-medication, to loneliness, to, you know, just, you know, a, a depression. We're at our peak years for the number of suicides that we have each year com- af- since uh, World War II. Mm-hmm. That tells you something. That's a sign that something in society isn't right.
0: Yeah. And just going to the even, you know, the name of the book, I think for most people in this country – Even if you, you know, I was fortunate. My dad's a doctor, and so I had a safety net, but it's still, and I knew that my parents weren't going to let me be homeless, that I wasn't going to starve, et cetera. But yet, you know, I was still pushed out of the nest, and I needed to support myself, period. So it's even just creating that that like where's under the trapeze artist like there is a net a
2: safety net yes yeah. it's just yeah. a safety net and you know I'm I'm guessing that probably at age two it was probably pretty predictable that you were going to do just fine because you had um, parents who, I guess, were reading to you and yeah. you had children's books in the house and you were being hugged and so on and, you know, And I'm like,
0: white and grew up right. with privilege. I mean, Absolutely. like, I have a lot of things going for me. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, meanwhile, the Naps who we write about in Tightrope, their dad was beating them up and shooting at his wife, their yeah. mom. Uh and giving those kids these childhood traumas that are really hard to get over,
1: yeah. so one of the things that we really try to do in tightrope is to change the narrative. And it's not just the narrative of personal responsibility, but there is a lot that stems from that narrative. And so the the case for universal health care, for instance, You know, people are worried that if you create these support programs, people are going to become dependent upon it. But I don't think you can say anyone in in Europe or in in Canada, Mm -hmm. you know, is dependent because they have universal health care in those countries. In fact, it makes them more resilient. And the way you can we can see that is that what happened after the financial crisis, you know, there were auto makers who laid off auto workers in both Detroit and in Windsor, Ontario, Canada, so we could compare. So in the U.S., partly because of the circumstances, we extended unemployment benefits. So these workers, you know, they lost their job, but they got good unemployment benefits, but they also lost their health care, which was a huge stressor on their life meanwhile over in Windsor Ontario these people they lost their job but they did not lose their health care because there's universal health care and the government kicked in looking around the area for where are their jobs mm-hmm. they saw that nursing had a demand so they actually created help create programs to retrain these retrain these auto workers you know these welders and these like, you know <laughs> electricians to you know, do something in nursing. And the result was that these people were ushered back into the workforce much more quickly. Years later, they're not self-medicating. They're not lonely. They're not, you know, they're not depressed. So it made them more resilient.
0: Yeah. And you guys make the point, which is so obvious, yet somehow I think evades most of our attention, which is that we do have universal health care in this country for the elderly and the most expensive people to insure. So the idea right. of extending it to children and doing preventative medicine the cheapest
2: is... And yet that's what we don't do. Right. Yeah. And it, it's striking that actually, at, it, traditionally in the US, our life expectancy, our health metrics, were about the same as other countries in the OECD, the other industrialized countries. And then other countries all surpassed us, so now we're near the bottom. And that's true for newborns, that's true for 20-year-olds, It's true for 40-year-olds. However, if you get to age 65 in the U.S., all of a sudden your life expectancy is essentially the same as other people in the OECD because you do have, at that mm-hmm. point, you do have universal health care.
0: Yeah, when it's too late to sort of stop a lot of preventable that's right. chronic diseases. That's, that's yeah. exactly
2: right. That's right. exactly yeah. right. And we don't, you know, the other thing that we always think about medical care, we don't think about dental care. And one of the things that really struck us in reporting Tightrope is, that, you know, there's 74 million Americans who don't have dental insurance, and there are just millions of people who every day suffer these agonizing toothaches that make it very hard to look after their kids, to work. And, you know, if you have a terrible toothache in the U.S., in much of the country, you suffer. You yeah. don't really have a remedy.
0: I mean, that was so heartbreaking, sort of the Stan Brock remote area medical health fair. I mean, the fact that he was operating in the deep parts of the developing world and then got a call from the U.S. <laughs> and now is trying
1: to provide free health care yeah, it, It's yeah. astonishing. They go to like 80 cities and they have their their free clinics, you know, for the weekend. And it, it, the lines are just stunning. I mean, you know, when you go there, you just see people lined up and, uh, you know, people are just sitting there waiting online line to get their teeth pulled out because they yeah. can't deal with the pain you know, on a daily basis. It's it's just untenable. I mean, I, I couldn't believe that one dentist was saying that basically he was fighting with this 21-year-old Woman who basically wanted all her teeth pulled because she believed that we have three sets of teeth. One is the baby teeth you know who, that get pulled out and they, you know, they, get, they get lost and you get your adult teeth. That's the second. The third is when you get your adult teeth you know pulled out so that you can get your dentures.
2: Yeah. and she
1: wanted to get it done yeah. early, <laughs> because that's what her, her mom had done. And he was fighting with her, and he said to her, "Oh, so you're just going to go from dentist to dentist until someone will pull out all your teeth. Is that right? And she said yes, and he just didn't have the heart to pull him out. Yeah, I mean
0: the fact that that's what we're that that's that we're America, and this is what's happening.
2: Oh, uh, it's staggering. I know. It's, there's a level of dysfunction, you know. The and dysfunction is, you know, we we measure poverty with incomes with with wealth, but there's this issue of dysfunction. You know, these feral children. These just toxic homes where drugs are over, kids are vulnerable to strangers coming in and abusing them, that is something that, and I've reported on poverty in a lot of countries, you don't see in the way you do in a lot of the U.S.
1: Yeah, but we can address it, and I I just think that we can address you know, young kids, every now, basically now, every 15 minutes, a, ch- a baby is born with exposure to opioids. Mm-hmm. We can change that because, you know, we have the mechanisms. These, these are not unsolvable problems. They just take political will and resources. And so we know how to address a child, especially when they are a baby. We can actually help teach the parents don't smoke or drink when you're pregnant, you know, you know don't take opioids when you're, when you're pregnant, and you know, don't do that when your kid is, is born. You, know, you wanna read to them, you wanna talk to them, you wanna hug them, you wanna have books around them. You know, there are programs like the Nurse Family Partnership that pay for themselves many, many times over. They go into a mother's home for the first two years of the baby's life, and they basically give parenting lessons. And that is just so useful for a lot of mothers who are very young. They just, you know, it's an unexpected birth or they just aren't educated enough to, you know, mm-hmm. know what to do with their newborn. And so these programs need to be funded more, just like, you know, also early childhood education, sort of pre-K, there should, it should be universal. These are a lot of things that we can do that, are, that require an investment up front but that uh, have such long-term payoffs that we really should be doing them. And other countries do them.
0: Yeah. I mean, you guys sort of outline the eight things that are required. High quality early childhood programs, universal high school graduation, universal health coverage, elimination of unwanted pregnancies, a monthly child allowance, an end to homelessness for children, baby bonds to help build savings, and a right to work. And is that sort of the order in which you think that these things politically need to be tackled?
2: You know, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard to choose, to prioritize things you deeply care about. Certainly, focus on children, early childhood education, getting every kid through high school would be very, very high on the list.
1: I also think that you can build a lot of common ground around babies and children because people re- recognize that children themselves—they're not culpable. You know, they—they they, they they no do personal the, responsibility. Exactly. argument. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And so that we should try and help our next, our future, because they are America's future. You know, it's also important jobs are very very important right now for the current generation I mean economists often say okay well when we you know have displacement or globalization or new or automation or new new uh, new industries come displacing the old industries that oh you know it, it's always a job creator right <laughs> it never is a... well yeah. it's a job creator but it's not a creator for those particular people who lose the jobs and so you have this transition period where people really are hurting because they've lost their job and so we need to spend more time helping those people because it does have ripple effects.
0: I also, I mean I cannot I cannot speak for all of corporate America, but I think we are all engineered in the job descriptions we write and the resumes that we look at to disqualify candidates who don't have a college degree or, you know, we're it's and again it's all built on an unfair system that we say is a meritocracy, which we know, you know clearly, that's not true. But I think it also will, will require companies, which have the power of nation states, often, to start to look at employing people who have been incarcerated, people who don't have traditional educational backgrounds, and probably doing those training programs in part themselves. Since I don't know that we can expect. I mean, how much yeah. can the government? How much? What needs to happen for the political will? Like, what? What can we? Expect or demand or make happen. So,
2: I think that there's actually some hope of change here. So, you know, essentially for 50 years, the U.S. has cut taxes and cut investments in education and human capital, and that's partly because, as Cheryl said earlier, it was all racialized. The benefits are going to blacks, and mm-hmm. you know, and so they were stigmatized. The programs were stigmatized for that reason, and that approach kind of reached its apex in Kansas a few years ago under Governor Sam Brownback. And Kansas Republicans rebelled and said, our schools have been too devastated. Tax us more. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Kansans then elected a Democratic governor. And I wonder if when histories of the U.S. are written in the future, they may not see that as a turning point when states decided that now – You know, some of these services really do matter. And Mm -hmm. then likewise, you had even red states like uh, Utah and Idaho and Kansas expand Medicaid and Nebraska. And so, you know, I I think there is an opportunity here to move forward. Working class whites are conservative socially on issues like guns and abortion, but on economic issues raising the minimum wage, uh, family leave, paid vacation, they are actually pretty liberal. And Mm -hmm. when they go in the voting booth, if they're thinking about abortion and conservative judges, they may vote for a Republican. If they're thinking about raising the minimum wage, they may vote for a Democrat. And Democrats have to fight for them.
0: And, yeah, no, and and obviously the economy matters. It also just feels like – I loved this quote. It feels like we're ready for a new – mom, you know – The new model where, you know, Ray Dalio, you quote, he says, you know, I'm a capitalist and even I think capitalism is broken. The problem is that capitalists typically don't know how to divide the pie well and socialists typically don't know how to grow Grow it it. well.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it's sort of. It's a great expression. It is
0: a great great expression. (laughs) I mean, somehow we have to like find our way in between.
2: But, you know, there is a model. And so a lot of young Americans think that, you know, capitalism is basically just a completely defunct system. But, you know, from 1945 through the 1970s, we had a capitalist system in the U.S. that was very good at growing the pie and very good at dividing it. We had remarkable economic growth, and we had declines in inequality. We had investments in Infrastructure like interstate highways and in human infrastructure like the university and college system, like community colleges, like uh, libraries around the country, and so and then everything became much more rigged. <laughs> yeah. And so I think we, you know, if we can go back to that kind of market-based system that isn't rigged and that is about investing in human services, uh, investing in inclusive growth then I think this country can do an awful lot better.
0: Thanks for listening to my conversation with Nick Christophe and Cheryl Woonan. Make sure to get a copy of their book, Tightrope, out now. It's incredible. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.